Okay, we are officially recording. Miss Michelle Carr, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so Dr. Silverstein um, reached out. Actually, I had, whenever we had our podcast, I was just telling you, um, we had our podcast and he said, you have to check out some of this, this girl's research. She's um, really doing some groundbreaking and new and cool things. So before we get into all about that, which is dream research, um, tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, I'm kind of curious, you know, what you do, how you got into research, so on and so forth. Yeah, uh, let's see how I got into research. Well, when I was an undergraduate, I actually worked at the University of Rochester, which is where I am now. And I worked as an undergraduate intern in the sleep lab with Will Pigeon, who's my my current supervisor. Um, And that was my first research experience. And I just thought it was so interesting to be to, to watch people sleep and uh, I don't know just like just to see what's going on with people during the night it was just a really unique research experience it was fun that's fun um yeah and I didn't really plan to get into it I guess but the, what was the your original plan was really fun. um uh, I don't know how much of a plan I had I was always interested in psychology but um, through Rochester, I started learning a lot more about like neuroscience and, mm. and I became more interested in that. And, and yeah, this sleep research just really, you know, piqued my interest. What's so, your undergrad in? Uh, brain and cognitive science and psychology. Yeah. Nice. So, both of them. Yeah. Nice. So did you have any plan on, on like why you wanted to have an undergrad in brain science or was it just like, I'm going to, this is something I'm kind of interested in. We'll kind of see where it goes. Probably at the beginning, I didn't have a plan. Uh, but once I, once I did research, uh, sleep research, that's when I was like, Oh, okay. I can, I could do this hmm. forever. Huh. Um, and I've always been a really big, dreamer I've always had really really intense dreams and nightmares and sleep paralysis and yeah all sorts of crazy experiences so um yeah I really wanted to study dreams as a scientist which I didn't necessarily know you could do (laughs) yeah but um over time I figured that out there's a an organization I'm a part of the International Association for the Study of Dreams Mm. and uh when I was an undergrad I just I just like emailed every member on their list. Like, what can I do? How can I do dream research? How can I make this my career? And a lot of people pointed me to Tori Nielsen's lab. He's in Montreal. He hmm. does. He has the dream and nightmare laboratory. What? Yeah. This is so a whole he, field of study that I didn't even realize. Like I, like, like what you're saying, like I, I've heard about it, but I didn't realize it was so in depth and we've only been like three minutes of this podcast. I'm already like, Oh my gosh, I can't wait to learn more. So what's the, yeah. kind of the what's the hook, line and sinker that got you into this field? Uh, probably my first lucid dream is what made me, I was like, I definitely want to study this because when I, have you had a lucid dream? Uh, well, tell me what that is first and I'll tell you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a lucid dream is basically just when you, you're in a dream and you become aware of the fact that what you're experiencing is a dream. Huh. Um, so yeah, I've had that. Yeah. I mean, my, the first time I had it, it was really, really powerful for me. I've had others that are like, you're just kind of like, Oh, it's a dream. Cool. Whatever. But the first one I had, I was sleeping in my dorm room uh, and I, I thought I woke up and I like sat up out of my bed and I felt kind of like weird and floaty. And I turned around and I could see my sleeping self was still like lying in bed asleep. And I was like, oh, oh my wow. God, what's happening? <laughs> wow. And I just remember like, I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm in my mind. This is crazy. And I was just like looking at, it was just my dorm room. Like that was a whole dream, but I was just like looking at the walls and I was I was looking at the lights and I was like, how am I creating this in my mind and experiencing it? Like it just blew my mind. So that kind of like, that to me is where interest in, in psychology and consciousness and interest in what what's happening in the brain. How can we have these experiences? You know, this is like a psychedelic experience that we're having every night. Um, that really, wow. I wanted to study that, you know, so. So that's uh okay. So what's interesting for me is, is, the differences in how people dream. Cause for me, I dream very rarely when I do dream, it's usually some like huge impactful, almost precognitive dream where like I've, I've had dreams where I think a lot of people have had this, where it's like this crazy symbolic dream. And then I feel, you know, like a, a month down the line, I know what the dream actually meant. Mm-hmm. And so when I do dream, it's very like intense. It's very, um, uh, 
Like I remember it typically and because it's so rare. And then yeah. like there was one time I had a dream and it was all the symbolic stuff between my family and um, extended family. And then I, I told the, these people what this dream was and what I thought it meant. And then two years later, it all came down. It all happened. Oh, wow. So it's like weird stuff like that. It made no sense. So again, this is kind of whenever he told me about you studied dreams, like, oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Precognitive dreams. There are some people doing work on that. It's hard to study. It's hard to, <laughs> yeah. it's, hard to get, it's hard to prove that, you know, scientifically. I know, but, but all this is, is super fascinating. So let's start from the beginning. Um, your very first research, you, 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 you started doing sleep you're watching people in their sleep, essentially. Um, the lucid dreaming is what caught your eye. So tell me some of the projects you've done. Um, apparently, this is your passion. So I want to know about your passion. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. So then I went to grad school in Montreal. And the projects in that lab and, and kind of what I've continued doing since then um, is like, on the one hand, trying to understand how dream content is related to actual like how it's functional, how it how it impacts the way that we live our waking life. Um, so like, is dreaming related to um, learning and to memory consolidation? So we, we often do studies where we give people a task before they go to sleep. You know, they come into the lab and then we make them do like uh, maybe a virtual reality task or like some video game task or just watch a movie. Um, and then they go to sleep, we watch them sleep. <laughs> we wake them up for their dreams and we try to see is their dream content related to the task that we had them doing um, and does their performance on the task after sleep, is it related to their dream content? So, so does dreaming about something impact your memory? Does it impact your performance after sleep? So that's kind of one whole area of study. And, and what, of, what did you find? What did we find? Yeah. I mean, we, sometimes, sometimes there's, there's variable amounts of evidence yeah, for yeah. when and how dreaming is related with learning. There is evidence that when you incorporate a task, um, it is associated with improved performance. Um, it seems like certain tasks are more likely to be incorporated into dreams than others. So explain that um, a little bit more like increased yeah. performance and stuff. Well, I'll give like maybe a specific example. Okay. The easiest. Um, what is a good example? Uh, let's see, recently, like a task could be like something like uh, like playing darts. So this is a task that requires a motor skill, right? Like mm -hmm. you have to, it's a specific motor skill that you're learning or like a finger tapping task where you have to move your fingers in specific ways. Um, a task like that, we might see some evidence of similar types of activities occurring in a dream and um, then after sleep, we can try to score, does the amount that they dreamt about the task correspond with how well, like how much they improve after sleep? And so things that are motor tasks, like, mm -hmm. like I said, the darts are like, um, recently there was a virtual reality study that did a flying task. So you're moving, your arms are like moving through the air. It requires, your, your whole body needs to be like balancing. Um, if you dream about that, then it seems like you're better at the task after sleep. Whoa. So in some way you're kind of, you're learning how to do this bodily task while you're asleep and while you're dreaming. So does that correlate with people who are super passionate about something? Like, so for me, um, one of the things I did, cause I, I like flying, right? I, I got my pots license, it's kind of young. And um, nice. it's just cause uh, it's being up in the air, being free was everything um, to me. And then, so for a long time, and, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm okay pilot. It's been a while since I've flown, but I'm, I'm okay pilot. And during that time frame, um, that's all I could think about. And mm -hmm. whenever I, because it's so expensive to be able to get your pilot's license, I was paying as I go, which also meant I couldn't put as much study time in because typically for your initial private pilot's license, you actually have to have like, I don't know, they, they, they want you to fly like three or four times a week. Um, I was flying maybe once a week, maybe, maybe once every two or three weeks. So some of the, my lessons that I paid for was, from previous, like I, we were recapping and rehashing things that I'd quote unquote already learned. But as soon as I got into that, that cockpit, I was fine. Like it was, yeah. there was, there was no, I just went with it, but it was because I was constantly thinking about it. I would dream about it. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if, do, have you found in any of your research, people who are super passionate about things um, are easier to accomplish those same tasks? 
Oh, I don't know if we've done that, but it definitely like people who are like athletes will dream a lot about, yeah. about what they, you know, their, their specific sport is, or, or a pianist will dream about playing piano or, hmm. um, and I think that's definitely, that makes you know, related sense, to learning. Yeah. Would you huh. dream about, you would dream about flying like a plane? Uh-huh. Well, yeah. yeah. And what were those dreams like? Uh, well, because I don't dream very much, it was few and far between, but it was yeah. just, I was just, it was freedom. So it's yeah, like, yeah. I get up in that plane. I know like I could feel, you know, the wings dip and I could feel the, uh, the, uh, ailerons on my hands. And I could, when I flip the right. pedals, all of it, it was just like, I was actually flying. So when I actually yeah. got into the cockpit, I didn't really need them a whole lot. I like the, the whole flying part of it. I'm amazing at it's the knowledge part of it that like all the like the oh, actual yeah. testing stuff that i struggled with right yeah so that's like that's kind of what's unique about dreams right is that you really can in a really completely embodied way experience and practice you know things that you're learning in in waking life especially things that you're passionate about things that matter to you um because we know like even even like rehearsing something mentally like mentally yeah. rehearsing flying a plane that that improves your performance or even more, if you do it in like a virtual simulation, did you ever, do they ever do that now? It's yeah. Virtual. So yeah, I yeah. flew, um, it wasn't in my school, but it was one of my buddies fly, uh, actually works on some of the, the actual DOD type of contracts for the F-35, I think it was F-35 or the F-22, maybe even the, just a lot of the fighter jets. And so they have an open house once a year, occasionally. Um, I don't know if that's still the same thing with COVID, but he invited me to come. I went and flew. I don't know what it was, but I landed it perfectly. It was the only, the, the only thing I struggled with was landing on the carrier. <laughs> so when oh, I, wow, that's man, <laughs> yeah, the landing on the carrier with like a strong crosswind was, was extremely hard. So um, I yeah. crashed, I crashed every time on that, but the very first time on the uh, virtual reality cockpit, I was almost perfect. Yeah. So, yeah. So dreaming is like kind of the ultimate virtual reality. Cause not only are you experiencing this simulation in your mind, but your body is, kind of you're uh, feeling it, you're feeling it happen as well. So it's a more kind of a more a fuller form of learning than just doing a, a waking VR task, I think. So I'll bet there could be a really cool uh, rabbit hole you could go down by uh, trying to establish uh, peak performance with how much you think and dream about this perf- that, that one subject, so mm-hmm. that, which makes you wonder if entrepreneurs who are super successful like Elon Musk, if, if that's what he eats, drinks, sleeps, dreams, <laughs> yeah. all of it, because... <laughs> he's not ever leaving that world, that reality. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and as a dream researcher, I'm <laughs> eat, drink and sleep dreams. Yeah, I know. Oh, the hell is that? <laughs> so, okay. It's a little trippy. So this is straight up uh, that movie uh, Inception where you're dreaming within a dream, within a dream, within a dream. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The That's whole point weird. of waking life is just to have good dreams. So, everything's a dream. <laughs> so what else have you found? Like doing the things before you do these sleep studies and having people dream, does eating affect how, what you dream and things like that? I mean, I'm sure everything does in terms of research. Um, oh my gosh, actually, one of the first studies I, I helped out on when I was in Rochester as an undergrad was looking at this effects of a tart cherry juice beverage on sleep. Uh, and this is because tart cherries, they have like, they, they have melatonin, I think, in them. So oh. if you drink it, it's supposed to improve your, your sleep. But you not, find some, some not regular cherries, though. That has to be tart cherries. Yes. Special tart cherries. I think they're from Michigan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's very specific. <laughs> and what'd you find? Um, I think, yeah, there was an effect that it improved insomnia symptoms uh, a little bit. But not, so, a, but not like a pizza or whatever you eat. Right. So the most common, I think, reference study is the study that was done in the UK by some cheese company or the British cheese something. They did a study looking at the impacts of cheese on people's dreams. And I think people had weirder and more vivid dreams when eating cheese. But huh. <laughs> I mean, huh. I think it's, it's all just related to, I mean, what your body is your, what your physiology is experiencing during sleep is of course going to affect what your mind is experiencing. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there's other kind of anecdotes about if you're, if you have a fever, there's that expression fever dreams. Huh. Um, so if you if your body is really hot during sleep, then you might have more weird or more negative dreams. Um, but yeah, if you if you eat a lot of cheese before bed, you're 
your digestion is probably going to be working through that. So, so does that mean cold natured people um, have completely different dreams than warm natured people? Or is it it specific to like the fever? It's not just specific to the fever. I don't think, because I think even if you like, if you sleep in a really hot room, like even if you're, you don't have a fever, but if the room is really hot, then you might wake up with bad dreams. Um, so do you get an increase in prevalence of fear in the summer? I don't know. I bet Mm. that's a good study to test. (laughs) Mm. Um, there was a, another, a mattress that came out recently, a cooling mattress. And they, they, they claimed that it it helps people with PTSD helps them to sleep or maybe decreases their nightmares uh, through cooling them down. (laughs) All right. So now let's, you, you talk about like the pathophys behind some of this. Let's talk about, you know, what the brain does in dream states. Um, so the, the REM, I mean, now we know that you're dreaming. It depends on how you define dreaming, but you can, you, you can have dreams throughout the entire night of sleep. So even if you're in a completely deep sleep where the brain is doing something very different than when you're in REM sleep. Um, most commonly we talk about REM sleep when we talk mm-hmm. about dreaming, which is actually the most aroused uh, sleep state. So it's, it's the most similar to wakefulness. You have a lot of mixed types of activation in the brain and you have a lot of activation in sensory areas. Um, so you're perceiving a lot and you're, um, let's see what else, but the difference then I guess between a REM state and wakefulness is that there's less activation in frontal areas of the brain. So the frontal areas are responsible for like thinking and planning and goal directed kind of, um, thought. So it's kind of more, I don't know, the waking kind of cognitions that we have are kind of decreased. So those, those areas are kind of sleeping, even when Mm. you're in REM sleep, which they think is why you can have these really vivid and immersive and multi-sensory experiences. But even if they're really bizarre, you kind of don't question that you're dreaming. You're just like, this is, this is normal. This is, Mm. (laughs) you don't, you don't think about it. You don't, you don't question what you're experiencing. You don't try to, you don't, plan too much while you're in a dream although we do see that a little bit but huh. it's just kind of creating this vivid immersive sensory experience but those frontal areas are are sleeping so if people who um say boxers or even people with cte like the concussions concussive syndrome like syndrome likes uh, football players where they have um a lot of damage to the brain a lot of that is that frontal lobe and the, and the coup contra mm. injuries do they have less dreams or are the dreams shifting in type? I don't know that they shift. So the thing is, once you have brain damage like that, then then it also affects dream recall, right? And there's this problem with, it's very hard for us to actually know when somebody doesn't recall a dream, is that because they're just not recalling it or is that because they're not experiencing it? Um, mm. So so yeah, you, you would see, I guess, with, I don't know that this specifically has been studied, but with certain types of brain damage, um, people won't recall dreams, hmm. but it seems like they're still having some sort of subjective experience. It's just maybe harder to recall. So in my um, experience, do you think that I'm just not recalling some of those dreams or do you think everybody dreams or is there a quantity that people do or don't dream? Yep. This is a big question in dream research. Um, what do I think? I think, we're experiencing things almost the entire time that we're asleep and that it's more a matter of what we can recall or how can, how we can recall it. Um, and this kind of ties into some of what we found with, with deep sleep. Um, we used to think that you just didn't, didn't dream when you were in deep sleep. So this is slow wave sleep. The brain is going through like the activation in the brain is very slow and, um, it's very different from wakefulness. Now you, you've mentioned active, the uh, different activation, quote unquote, with uh, the different levels of brain waves. Now, are you referencing like the alpha, gamma, those type of brain waves? Yeah, okay. that's right. So it's, it's the frequency of firing, essentially neural firing in the brain. Um, so in deep sleep, it's like the whole, the whole brain has much slower activation patterns. Whereas in REM sleep and in wakefulness, there's a lot more of a mixture, but um, a lot more high frequency activation too. So with people who are super stressed, who might even have, what's like the most, what's that? Uh, 
What's the most stressed brain wave? Do you remember? There's alpha, mm-hmm. gamma, beta. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know what, what's higher than beta. <laughs> yeah, but all that that being said, like for people who are chronically stressed, mm-hmm. you probably find a, a very different brain wave even in their restfulness and their sleep, which mm-hmm. probably already are already correlate to how they dream. Am I right? Oh yeah, for sure. So so people who have like insomnia or nightmares they have a more aroused sleep. So even when they're in deep sleep, you'll see more indications of higher frequency activation. And this seems to be related to dreaming too. So obviously people who have nightmares have um, really intense negative uh, dreams. They have a lot more what's called micro arousals during sleep. So they they come out of sleep kind of in like little sections throughout the night. Um, And then with insomnia, we see that too. People with insomnia, Physiologically, they look quite similar to people with nightmares, but rather than having nightmares, they'll have experiences where they they just say they feel like they're awake. So it's not a nightmare, but they subjectively feel like they're awake through a lot of a lot of the night. So they're just their mind is kind of more active in that way. Um, and hmm. so it's a less a less restful sleep. If you don't get these really deep slow waves. Um, yeah. So are the to, to achieve that money zone of brain waves. Um, do you find a close correlation to people who might be more depressed or more anxious during the day where they're always having to find um, almost like they can never find peace during the day because they're always overthinking things, even in their own head. So when they come to sleep at night, they are always jumping out of what is could be a restful brainwave state, which would mm-hmm. also mean that they're probably um, having these nightmarish uh, dreams, right? Yeah. More active, more active dreams. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. More, if you have a more anxious, more kind of, well, there's different terms, but more anxious or more active kind of worrying mind during the day, then yeah, we, we see that during the night too. And it seems to interfere with getting a deep and a restful sleep. Is there a predictor for how people dream well or have nightmares? A predictor. Because you said you said you kind of have rough dreams, right? And that's I have all of them. <laughs> okay, yeah, well, okay. So if yeah, which is kind of funny. Yeah, there, there are personality traits. If that's if you mean something like that. Um, like what what predicts or what um, maybe signifies people having bad dreams versus good dreams? Um, people who, who have bad dreams, I mean, the main predictor is, is something like, like anxiety, neuroticism, um, but also kind of more general terms of, you could use a term like highly sensitive. So people who are just generally slightly more, um, emotionally aroused during the day and more, you can see it in other ways too, like sensory sensitivity. So people who are, um, it's, it's basically like they just, take more in from the environment, you know, they're more, Mm. it it can be a good thing because it can be associated with like, you might have more, um, more aesthetic sensitivity, like artists and creators often are are highly sensitive. Like they really respond to um, the sensory kind of, I don't know, vividness of the environment, but then it, it has negative impacts too, because you become easily overwhelmed. You become easily like uh, distressed by really negative experiences. Um, so it seems like just people who are more sensitive and responsive to the environment around them during waking life, they then generate a much more vivid dreaming life as well. So it's like oh, wow. they're taking more in during the day and then they're creating more during their dreams at night. So these images that we're creating in dreams, um, we know that some that hormones are, are a huge factor for a lot of this. And you just said emotions are a pretty big indicator as well. Um, do you know much about how our brain interprets these new images and these scenes that occur? Um, and does DMT, something like DMT actually have a, a factor in all this? I don't know much about, about DMT. I'm wondering if you do. <laughs> I, I, that's, that's what I'm asking you. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Dr. Silverstein actually uh, referenced me to another uh, psychedelic researcher. I'll be having on later. I'll probably ask yeah, yeah. some of these questions as well, but I was just curious if you ran into any of those experiences and kind of how does our brain like you, your undergrad and, and what's your PhD in? 
Biomedical science. Biomedical science. Okay. So we've, we've had a lot of, um, like, you know, a lot about the brain, you know, a lot about the, even the pathophys behind it cause it's your passion, so on and so forth. Um, why does our brain interpret these images and create these images and how does that work? Well, there's different theories. I mean, some people think that dream imagery is really just, uh, it's just random. It's just random firing of neural activity that just occurs during sleep. And it's just, so you have activation that's occurring in, in like a sensory area and the visual area of the brain. And so you just kind of interpret it as an experiencer, but it's completely random. That's one school of thought. <laughs> Um, I mean, today, a lot, a lot of the work is on something called like memory reactivation. And this is kind of thinking that it's not random firing. It's like you're kind of reactivating pieces of experiences that you had during the day. So, hmm. and, and we see this in dreaming. You often incorporate parts of the recent day. It's, it's disjointed, but like if I might like, I might, you might be a character in my dream tonight. So it's like, hmm. it's replaying or reactivating a visual or an auditory sensory experience that I had that day. So it's not completely random and it's not something, it's not like we're just being bombarded by random sensory activation that we're just making sense of, but it's like, it's meaningful. It's meaningful sensory activation. So I have like, you know, my, my cat appears to me and then you, I hear your voice and then, you know, it's, it's kind of a hodgepodge, but it's, 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 uh, we're making sense of kind of a, memory activations that are that are happening and, hmm. and com combining through different sensory systems um yeah That's interesting yeah. you before we get into your main bread and butter which you're doing you do a lot of bread and butter on <laughs> that's kind of funny i do a lot of bread and butter, <laughs> you a little bread and butter right? <laughs> um, your bread and butter is in lucid dreaming and how it affects the mental health am i right and how to control some of that that's kind of where you're at right now Right. Trying to get some bread and butter for that. Yeah. Okay. So let's, before, <laughs> before I jump into that, we jump into that. Um, but going back to the idea of, of our brains rehashing things, mm -hmm. do you find any uh, link between people who have had more trauma in their life and how they dream? Almost like dreaming is, is um, a way to process some of that trauma, even like, you know, EMDR therapy. Do you know much about Okay. So EMDR right. therapy is, you know, how our, our eyes are reactivating different parts of our brain to process trauma. So are those linked at all? Is there a way, like you mentioned yeah. before, cold, uh, that mattress and how it affects people with PTSD. Yeah. Walk me through yeah. some of that about what you know. Right. Yeah. So, so the strongest example is PTSD that people who have had um, serious traumas will develop PTSD. And one of the main symptoms is post-traumatic nightmares. Um, so this is where you actually replay an entire trauma memory. Well, these are called replicative nightmares because you replay the whole trauma and you almost re-experience the trauma in your nightmares exactly as it happened in waking life. Ugh, um, terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. And it, and because you, you know, it, that's interfering with your sleep, but you're also, I mean, your body is, it's, it's really like re-experiencing the trauma over and over again. You're getting re-traumatized by it. Um, so that's kind of the most extreme example, but we see kind of lower levels of that happening in people who have nightmares. A lot of times they seem to be related to early traumas or early adversities. Um, there's definitely a very strong correlation between those. And it is, it's related to this idea that, yeah, your dreams are replaying in some way um, really salient emotional experiences that you've had. Um, and we think one of the functions is it's supposed to be adaptive. It's supposed to help us, you know, uh, process that experience. And um, it's actually supposed to help us over time feel less emotionally aroused in response to these adversities or these traumas that, that many people experience. Um, but sometimes in the case of PTSD, it just, it just, it's, it fails. Essentially the process fails. We just keep replaying this trauma and we can't adapt to it. The person keeps waking up. Um, before the dream can kind of, um, I don't know, allow you to process it uh, in a positive way. So, so kind of the the treatment for nightmares and for PTSD nightmares um, is really an attempt to to uh, just feel to to be less aroused and less 
less reactive to the trauma as it, or the nightmare memory, I guess. So you have people will imagine their nightmare in a new way. It's basically, this is the main treatment for nightmares. You, you just imagine coming to a new resolution or you imagine having a positive response to the nightmare or um, even just like slight changes because nightmares, they, they tend to repeat in some way, they recur and, and you just want to kind of um, shift, shift the imagery a little bit and, and kind of like help the dreaming process um, to, to evolve and to resolve. So, so it's really our body's way of trying to heal itself through yeah. really bad situations that might have occurred. Yeah. Huh. I think that's a good, good way to say it. Yeah. That's yeah. And sometimes it, we might just need to use waking imagination to, to help that process to occur. Uh, if we keep waking up from a nightmare, then it's like, we need to kind of, I don't know, continue the process. So that, so that we can adapt to it. Well, then that's perfect. So if we keep waking up from these nightmares and you have the same nightmares for years and years and years and nothing seems to work, how do we process the nightmares and the trauma? Do we just, do we need to incorporate other factors of medicine and psych psychotherapy that's going to help with that? Yeah, there are other types of medicine, but yeah, as, as I was saying, the main treatment is this, it's called imagery rehearsal therapy. And it really is you know, if you've had this recurring nightmare, even for decades, um, what you do is you just, you know, you just reimagine it. You re rewrite the nightmare with a more positive ending. <laughs> it sounds so simple and yet it works. So you, you say, I've had this nightmare. I'm being chased by someone and I keep waking up. They're about to, you know, they're about to murder me and I wake up. Um, you just reimagine it. You write a new ending for it and you say, okay, well, Instead of um, waking up right there, I discovered that um, there's a doorway next to me and I can escape, or I discovered that I can fly and I fly away, something like that. And then you just visualize this new ending. You imagine it before you go to sleep and you just rehearse it. And through doing that, it, it can change. Like the next time that you have the nightmare, because it will still get triggered, the nightmare will get triggered, but then this new ending might occur or something changes and you don't wake up from it and you don't have the nightmare. And then it just, it can just completely disappear a nightmare that you've had for decades. Why does that like work? You just, <laughs> I think it's, it's, this is the process of dreaming is, is supposed to kind of incorporate different experiences and, and to, I don't know what went with the nightmare. It just seems like you wake up before the dream can finish its job. You know, it's like you get too, aroused, you get too um, reactive and you just, you wake up before something new can happen. Um, so when you say aroused, what do you mean? Yeah, I guess, I mean, it's mainly like becoming overwhelmed by negative emotion, but it's, I say aroused because it's actually physical. You know, we see people, their heart is racing, their breath rate is increasing, mm -hmm. their muscles are twitching. So their whole body in this, in this sleeping state is very aroused, both physiologically and um, mentally, they're emotionally very overwhelmed. Yeah. Do you find that certain people have certain types of brains, like certain personality types? Earlier, you said um, like a narcissist typically, and certain other people who might be struggling um, have a certain type of, of dream, sometimes more towards the negative side. Have you found that in other areas as well? Yeah. So, with well, with lucid dreaming, I guess, is one area that we see certain types of um, personality traits are associated with having more lucid dreams. Um, and this could be, on the one hand, it seems to be related to how you think. So if you're somebody who um, is like, has, <laughs> it's called metacognition. So when you're aware of what you're thinking about, um, it's kind of like thinking about thinking. <laughs> So when you, yeah. if you're very aware of what you're thinking about and you're very, it even relates to kind of being more mindful or practicing mm -hmm. meditation, these practices that where you're observing yourself and you're observing what you're thinking about and you're controlling what you're thinking about, um, those seem to be corresponding with people who have more lucid dreams, which makes sense, right? Like mm -hmm. you're, you're more aware of how you're thinking and how you're experiencing things in waking life then you're also more likely to become lucid in a dream to realize 
oh, what I'm experiencing right now is is a dream. You're kind of thinking about what you're experiencing. That's really yeah. interesting. So you're, you're it's almost like your um, your consciousness is is reaching new levels. So for people that are are really focusing on mindful techniques, meditation, really deep inner thinkers, do you find them more to be more of these lucid dreamers and more um, and almost at a higher state of conscience? Is that is that even a thing? I don't know if I could go that far, but I do think, yeah, there is a relationship between, um, there's been a few studies looking at relationship between practicing meditation or practicing mindfulness and having more lucid dreams. It is a different, it's a different way of experiencing consciousness. It's like, it's like observing what you're experiencing rather than just like in a dream, rather than just being immersed in and reacting to what's happening in the dream, you're kind of, you're, yeah, you're, you have this like observer effect. You kind of remove yourself and you watch what is happening to yourself. It's almost like if my, my, I have a four-year-old son. So if yeah. it's almost like if my four-year-old son was playing out in the back with me, like we we're playing football, um, you know, I'm experiencing that and just enjoying the here and the now versus me on the porch watching him play football and still seeing a lot of the same scene occur. Right. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Now, can you, can you lucidly dream without sleeping? Oh, mm. good question. I say that to say because a lot of people have these out-of-body experiences. Well, a lot of out-of-body experiences do occur in sleep. Yeah. Um, I, I've been with people who are like, I'm talking to them and they just kind of like phase out and like kind of in a weird state. And they said, I'm, I'm seeing myself right now. <laughs> oh man, yeah. So th- that type of situation. Yeah, this is a this is another kind of open question I think in dream research is how much are we tying the experience of a dream to specific sleep states because you Ooh. can have these types of experiences when you're awake, right? You can have very immersive daydreams or you can have as you're saying like dissociative experiences. Um but but yeah, they've traditionally been kind of tied and defined to sleeping. Um I think that that might change, especially as we get better at measuring uh, sleep states. I mean, now there's a lot of work showing that even throughout the day when you're technically awake, you can have what's called local sleep in the brain. So certain parts of the brain at times are sleeping. (laughs) What? Yeah. So, and when you do that, you might have more mind wandering, more daydreaming. And it seems like there's much more fluidity in how we think of waking and sleeping and how we think of waking and dreaming that it's, it's much more of a continuous process. It's not like, it's not like you're only asleep during those seven hours of the night. You actually have patterns of sleep during the day and you have patterns of wake during the night too. So, wow. so I think, yeah, you could have a lucid dream, even if you were technically awake. There's that bird that does that. Um, you know, the, there's a bird who can shut off half its brain if, and, and completely fall asleep to keep one eye open. That's where the term, you know, sleeping with one uh, eye open is from an actual bird who does yeah, that, yeah. shuts off half his brain with one eye open and can sleep. So it's yeah. really interesting how we can shut off part of our brain for that exact same thing. Yeah, now, that people, is. Um, yeah. People with, sorry, with, uh, with ADHD or ADD who are always thinking about different things and can't really focus what part of the brain is it, I guess, mm-hmm. is that part of the brain asleep? I don't know the answer to that question. That's a good question. Um, I think they are, you know, researchers are starting to look at this is how is local sleep um, relating to different types of maybe mental disorders or, or different um, personality traits during the day. I don't know the answer to that though. No, that's a good, yeah. that's interesting though. So with the local sleep, what are they finding? Like what part of the brain is typically asleep during the different parts of the day? Hmm. From what know you the know. I not that either. <laughs> no, you're good. You're totally good. You're totally good. I just, this is all fa- super fascinating, uh, man. The local sleep stuff, it's very new, you know, it's, um, and it's, it's kind of a new, a new wave, I think. And it's a new way of, it's, it's really different than how we've looked at sleep. I mean, forever. So, um, do you know how they, do you know how they came across that, uh, finding? Well, it's because we, so traditionally to study sleep, we would use just like four to six electrodes on Mm -hmm. the scalp. And, um, and from that, you can basically tell if somebody's in, um, in like a, a deep sleep versus in REM sleep. So, 
as I was saying earlier, when you're in deep sleep, all parts of the brain are showing these really slow patterns of activation. Whereas when you're in REM sleep, you'll see faster activation. Um, and especially, you know, in frontal areas of the brain, you see, well, maybe I shouldn't say that. I, I'm not positive, but. <laughs> well, what, okay, so every time I have a researcher on the show, I, I'm always like trying to give that clause, hey, just tell us what you know. It doesn't have to be fact. And I get, <laughs> it doesn't have to be true. Because that's how every research study, I mean, I, I look at research studies all the time just for, for fun. That's how I found Dr. Silverstein. Like at yeah. the bottom of every study, it's always like, more research know. needs to be done. <laughs> you yeah. know, this is not conclusive. You don't really know. No any conflict of, of interest. Yeah. <laughs> so it's always yeah. that same clause. So even as you talk, like uh, you don't have to say it black and white. You, just say, <laughs> you can say opinions. What or what, what, exactly. And that's all yeah. research is, right? Totally. That's all. That's all medicine is. That's all science is. Which is yeah. We we exactly. need to always need to be pushing for newer ideas and what we don't know, which True. is why I love this whole study. This is amazing. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So all I was going to say is then, like recently, we'll now instead of using six electrodes, we have caps that have two hundred and fifty six electrodes. What? And so what you can see when you have that resolution, you can see is that sometimes you know there's slow waves just in one small part of the brain. Um, whereas you'll see activation, like, you know, wake-like activation in other parts of the brain. So that's basically what allowed us to learn about local sleep is having much more resolution when we're looking at, uh, EEG. Yeah. EEG. That's, that's what I was going to ask what that was, which is basically, mm -hmm. so every, everybody knows what an EKG is, which is the heart picture. There's 12 electrodes for that. Well, 11 technically, but <laughs> it's called a 12 mm -hmm. for some reason. Anyways, the EKG is the heart picture. There's about 11 or 12 on there. Um, and it's basically the same thing for the brain, but instead of having only 12 pictures of the heart, you're getting 250 pictures of the brain, which is fascinating, yeah. which I'm yeah. super excited about because the brain is like one of the most amazing parts of our body that we don't know jack about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you trying. know, like the yeah. still to this day, the definition of like a seizure is a brain spaz, you know, yeah. we still don't know necessarily why seizures occur, but there's disorders galore. So totally. I'm just, yeah, it's true. all like, we need to, we need to go further guys. <laughs> <laughs> Working on it. Yeah, exactly. So, um, before you mentioned how you, you did a lot of research in sleep studies to where the, you would have people do things, um, and then they would go to sleep to see how it changed things. You know, mm -hmm. every, this is kind of getting to like sexual intimacy and stuff, but with, um, people who are, are sexually active, it, it seems to be that that always happens at night and it always helps people fall asleep. So, oh. hmm. so, I mean, if you think about like a lot of times, you know, the, the, the sexy time, the romantic time typically isn't at 1 PM in the afternoon yeah. <laughs> because, you know, everybody's at work. Uh, you know, that's maybe just societal trends. Um, but what that's do you know about kind of the societal side of, you know, being intimate with somebody right before you fall asleep and how, and that, how that might help us fall asleep? I wonder, I wonder how much that's just a, like the context, like you're in bed, right? <laughs> so, so is that why it is, or is it really, um, that having sex actually helps you to fall asleep? Hmm. I think there was some recent, this was not a real science. Well, it wasn't a scientific study, but some company looked at how sexual activity relates to sleep. And I think for men, it was associated with better sleep, but not for women. <laughs> That makes sense. My wife is usually uh, wired afterwards. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. Yeah. So um, let's get back into your, your bread and butter, your lucid dreaming and how you're able to control lucid dreaming to uh, apply that to healing of mental health issues. So how did you get into that? Why are you into it? And how does it work? Uh, how did I get into it? Well, I, I've used it myself because um, I have lucid dreams now and I have had nightmares too before. And I sometimes have used lucid dreaming to. Oh, the cat. <laughs> That's my cat. Thanks. Hi, kitty. Hello. Um, yeah, to, to, um, to heal nightmares. Um, so I learned techniques very, like kind of when I first learned about lucid dreaming, I read a lot of books about how, how can we use lucid dreams? And that is kind of one of the main um, applications of lucid dreaming is uh, treating nightmares and <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll give one example. I had, I had this recurring nightmare. This was one of the first times that I used this technique where I, I had a recurring nightmare of being chased by this 
pretty cartoonish purple monster. Um, and one time I had this nightmare and I became lucid. I was like, oh, this is this recurring nightmare I keep having. I'm supposed to do something. And I, I, had, I was being chased and I just turned around and I faced the monster and I just asked it, who are you? What do you want? And it immediately completely transformed into a friend of mine who I had had like an argument with like months earlier. Whoa. And I woke up and I realized, oh, this nightmare is about this argument that I've had with this friend and it's about this situation that I have to deal with. And that's what's so amazing is that the dream, it can reveal things that you don't know, you know, like, huh. like clearly in my mind, I knew that this was about my friend. I knew that's what the nightmare was about, but I, I hadn't made that connection. And as soon as I asked it lucidly, it just immediately changed. And I was like, oh, this is just a nightmare about this argument. That's and then crazy. It, it went away. <laughs> and you never had the dream um, again. Yeah, exactly. So, oh my gosh. So that's what becoming lucid in a bad dream, or even if it's not a bad dream, you can use lucidity to kind of confront your own fears. You can use it to, to kind of try, try to learn about yourself and to try to kind of probe your own, your own psyche. So how did you super- know? Yeah, that's, a, that's insane, actually. Uh, I, again, I think people don't realize how key their consciousness and their mind really is. Cause that that's fear. Everybody, nobody likes fear. I mean, unless you're, I, yeah, think, yeah. I think even serial killers don't like fear. I mean, like that's yeah. never, that's not cool. Um, you can literally tack away all your fears if you can learn how to control some of these dreams. So how did you learn how to, how to do that? Um, well, the lucid dreaming part, I, I tend to just. Rare. <laughs> <laughs> Get out. Okay, sorry about that. No, you're totally fine. <laughs> life. Um, and I'm totally not cutting that out, by the way, because that's just real life. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love doing these type of things because life is this is this is life. Come on. It's like, um, what was I talking about? Oh, how to become lucid. So there's different techniques you can use, but I kind of. I like to do like the the easiest and most enjoyable techniques (laughs) because some of the techniques involve like you have to wake yourself up in the middle of the night and stay awake for 20 minutes and and try to go into a lucid dream. And I don't like to do that. Um, So I tend to just, before I go to sleep, most nights, honestly, I'll just um, mentally kind of set the intention that I want to become lucid and I'll kind of, it's a bit like a little mindfulness practice that I'll do. I'll, kind of focused on my sensory experiences and just try to kind of set this mindset where I'm paying attention to what I'm experiencing in it sensorially. So visually what I'm hearing, what like I'm when hearing. you're so practically you're, you're laying down in bed, mm-hmm. you're kind of getting prepped for, for sleep and you're, you're kind of grounding yourself. Is that what you're doing? Yeah. Yeah. It's grounding. And it's, it's really, I focus a lot on sensory experience because dreaming is so sensory, right? So but you've so said what, that a few times. I don't really know what that means. <laughs> a sensory experience. Uh, different. It's, it's visual. It's it's auditory. It's it's. Um, there's a lot of like felt bodily sensations. Uh-huh. So it's different sensor sensations or perceptual experiences. Okay. Um, about the dream or just about your life. Uh, so as I'm doing it in bed, I'm just focusing on literally what I'm experiencing at okay. that moment. Okay. So what do I? What am I hearing? What am I feeling? Um, okay. what am I seeing? Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> My eyes are closed. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so just kind of being mindful and, and setting the intention to become lucid. So that's, that's my main practice for lucid dreaming. And it, I tend to have lucid dreams like once, once a week or once every two weeks, just, wow. just doing that. So that's that works for me. Okay. So that's how you get to the kind of your body to become lucid, but why does that work? Why does it work? Um, That's kind of the leading hypothesis behind it. Yeah, I mean, I think because to become lucid in a dream, uh, it is really, you, you have to notice that, that, that what you're experiencing at that moment is a dream. So it is, it's kind of um, noticing that what you're experiencing visually or what you're hearing or what you're feeling when you pay attention in your dreams, you might notice, oh, this is a bit 
unusual or this is kind of a this is a dreamlike experience um and it and it leads to a moment of lucidity where you say oh this is a dream <laughs> um yeah and the other technique for becoming lucid is um throughout the day is to question whether you're awake or dreaming so you take take like one minute 10 times throughout the day and just really examine the world around you what you're seeing what you're hearing and ask yourself is this dream am i dreaming right now is this a dream hmm. um and really kind of pay attention to what you're experiencing and question whether it's a dream and if you do that then it, it leads to the same kind of insight you have you're in the middle of a dream normally you're just completely immersed in what you're doing but then you'll have this kind of this mental kind of it's like <laughs> mental cue that's just like wait a second what am i experiencing right now is this is this a dream or is this waking well it's literally just like inception how they have the the top and that in a dream mm. or whatever it it there that's the argument it's whether topples yeah, yeah. Does um, it? <laughs> yeah, exactly that's, that's a huge controversy to this day yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um but it's okay that makes sense that's really cool so for in the technology boom that we've had with everybody on social media more than and even just technology more than any other point in time in the universe or well that's also yeah. controversy but <laughs> um do we do we find that because you're not outside you're not you know touching as many things you know you're not really experiencing as much vitamin d you're more inside you're on the computer you're on your phone those are kind of sensory uh depriving so mm-hmm. for people who are sensory deprived, a lot of times, do you find a different effect on their dream state? That's an interesting question. And I'm totally cool with opinions. And um, well, 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 it's interesting actually, because there's the opposite link there. There seems to be, um, this is anecdotal, but a link between sensory deprivation, like full sensory deprivation, you know, when people, you know these floating tanks? Yeah. Yeah, where you can like float in salt yeah. water and have, and you can be in pitch blackness mm-hmm. and, and it's quiet and it's a sensory deprivation. Yeah, you have, yeah, you have like you're blinded and you can't hear. That actually, some people use that as a way to have lucid dreams. What? <laughs> that it's somehow, I don't know. It's, uh, I don't know how. I don't know how. That's but, weird. So if you're trying to, to, increase your senses to become lucid dreaming why does taking them away cause more lucid dreaming is there a threshold for kind of what you need for that i wonder if it's it's just that it's such a unique sensory experience Uh, it's almost like being bombarded by sensory experience is is less lucid you know you're less because it's just you're just there's too much stimulation um whereas maybe when you're in a sensory deprivation it's like it's very unique and it's like you can you can really it's like you feel the absence of stimulation because it's so it's so unusual for us to be in that state and it's also i guess it is also more similar to sleep right like during sleep you're not moving you're not there's not much real noise so it's kind of a more jeez i don't know it's really interesting interesting um I'm like, there's so many questions I want to ask you, but I also know like mm. we can't get into all of it. So with mental health, what what mm. are the, some of the main things that you've seen lucid dreaming affect? Um, so mainly lucid dreaming has been used to treat nightmares is what I was mentioning earlier. So it's, it's basically lucid dreaming treatment for nightmares. It's like what I said with imagery rehearsals. So in waking life, you reimagine your nightmare. Mm-hmm. But lucid dreaming allows you to do that in the dream state. So like the example I gave where I turned around and I confronted this monster that was chasing me. So um, that is kind of the main application is to teach people who have nightmares how to have lucid dreams so that if they become lucid in a bad dream or in a nightmare, rather than just waking up, they can confront what's happening. They can change the ending. They can they can fly away or they can, you know, talk with attacker or yeah. I don't know, they can change, change what's happening and it gives them more, more of a sense of control. Um, Cause one of the, the worst things about nightmares is that you feel completely helpless, you know, and this is kind of a, a general um, kind of sense that people have is that their nightmares are completely out of their control. They have, 
then they're completely helpless and they can't do anything about them because it's just something that happens to me. You know, the mm -hmm. nightmare happens to me. And lucid dreaming training teaches you that, well, actually you do have some, you can intentionally change your dreams. You can control them. You can um, interact with them uh, in a more positive way. And so just that kind of helps people who have nightmares. Hmm. Um, so I guess that makes sense why narcissists uh, have nightmares more because they're typically, right? I think neuroticism. Neuro neuroticism. I'm sorry. Neurotic. Yes. Yeah. But what were you going to say? Because now you've got a, you've got a new idea. Why do well, narcissists have nightmares? Well, I, that's my question. Do they? Do narcissists have nightmares? Because you talk about control and how mm. like narcissists are are typically the the CEOs, the yeah. um, the ones who are always in control of everything. And I even have narcissistic narcissistic uh. tendencies because I'm always managing things. Um, I'm I'm usually in control of everything, like in some mm. form of way. Um, and that's even like I've learned how to to balance that in a good way where I, I can manage a lot of tasks at once. Um, and also know how to release control in, in, in a lot of areas, even with my wife and our mm -hmm. family, but I also don't have a lot of nightmares. So I don't, mm -hmm. you talk about how people who, um, are in control a lot of times have more nightmares at night because it's out of their control, but that's actually kind of the opposite mm -hmm. with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So why do you think that is in your opinion? Well, that's, that's interesting. I think the, the feeling uh, that you, I mean, if you feel like you are in control in your life, that I could see how that would not be associated with having nightmares. Hmm. You, you never have nightmares. Um, I, no, it's not that I don't never, or I don't want to do a double negative. There. Don't I don't never. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's not that I don't have nightmares. It's that it's, I can't remember the last time. Now yeah. granted also back to, am I just not recalling them? That's another question. Um, I yeah. know it's, it's not having any major impact and I know that the ones yeah. that the, the dreams that I do have are usually very impactful and either, you know, precognitive or, um, right. have some sort of massive symbolism in my life. Awesome. So, yeah. Yeah. So that, I don't know about, I don't know if there's research on narcissists and nightmares, but now I'm curious about it. So I would think that that feeling more in control in your waking life might be associated with less nightmares because nightmares are really are, they're, they're usually associated with a feeling of a loss of control and feeling mm -hmm. out of control, feeling overwhelmed. Um, so those seem to be opposites. Interesting. So why do you think I don't have, so I, I'm not really having really good dreams, but I'm also not really having like bad dreams. I just have symbolic and deep meaning dreams. Why do you think that is? Well, I do wonder what if you're having other dreams, but just not remembering them. You so might just rem be remembering the, the big ones. So how do I become more aware? The yes, yeah, the first piece of advice is always just to keep a dream diary. It's it's amazing how much that increases dream recall. Just if you wake up when first thing in the morning when you wake up, you just try to remember whatever you can. Mm -hmm. um, uh, usually, you'll be able to remember like something. Like even if you can't remember the visual content or the what was the story of the dream? You might remember just, I feel like it was a bit negative or I feel like it was, I felt a bit heavy for some reason. Like you might remember just like a little bit. And then over time, if you do that and practice that every morning, then you'll start to get better at recalling. You'll remember dreams more frequently. And um, well, actually I started doing that uh, a while. Oh yeah. Like Did years you? ago, I, because I would have these deep, meaningful, significant dreams. So I started writing down all these significant dreams and uh, I mean, I, it was still, you know, one dream every two, three, four, five months, even with, oh, wow. uh, with me recording it. So I stopped Didn't recording you? it because I was just like, oh, it's <laughs> kind of dumb. Oh, that's, that's so easy, though. You have it just one every few months. It's uh, yeah. So I had a lot it. of work, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I have my my journals like, you know, very, very thin. Right. Yeah. But it's nice. from from my teenage years, and so it's been oh, an wow. ongoing thing throughout my, throughout my entire life. I'm just curious what the that's so cool that you have that. It's weird. It's weird. I don't know. I I want to because like even my wife she dreams crazy stuff. I'm like man, I want to be a part of that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Every night. <laughs> yeah, do you, every night. Do you wake up um, early? Or do you wake up with an alarm? No, I can actually. Yeah. And it's weird. Like when I was so I, I'm. I'm a stay-at-home dad right now, but um, for you know the entire career, my wife's not working full time, so she's carrying the load. That's why I podcast. <laughs> um, 
but for for a long time, I'd get up at anywhere from four thirty to for one job to uh, you wow. know, seven for the other job, and I got to where I could just tell myself to wake up at a certain time, and I would do it without ever having needing an alarm. So I started testing it, and I would test you know set my alarm for four thirty. And I was like, okay, I need to wake up for my alarm. And it consistently, I would wake up at like 429 every morning. That's, yeah, It's totally. weird. It's, do you, yeah. do you know much about that? Uh, it's definitely like, yeah, it's definitely a finding, but it's hard to understand how it's possible. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It yeah. doesn't make sense. And that's why I'm, I'm, I just don't know what to do. Like, I'm just very curious yeah. about it now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious about it too, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems like our, we're, our body is keeping track of time yeah. <laughs> without us trying to, which is really cool. I know. Even while we're sleeping. Yeah. If you ever want an interesting test subject, please, I'll be, yeah. I'll be that guy. Um, yeah. And I will wake you up in REM sleep and you will remember a dream. <laughs> <laughs> but what happens? Like, have you been in a situation where you're in there and the, the person isn't dreaming? Yeah, it, for sure it happens. But, you know, our, our rates of getting recall are, are really high when we wake someone up from REM sleep and immediately just say what was going through your mind uh, right when they wake up, you know, we'll get, get rates of like 90% of the time people recall something. So, Oh, wow. So what's your current research on, are you allowed to talk about it? Yeah. Uh, kind of around lucid dreaming, trying to induce lucid dreams in participants when they're in the lab. Um, that's where we are so far. I'm hoping to, to actually apply that in the context of therapies. Um, so to do that in people who have nightmares. Um, but right now we're still kind of on the, we've done some induction studies recently. Um, and the techniques are really similar to what I've been talking about. So mm -hmm. we'll have people come into the lab and um, before they go to sleep, we have them do this kind of mindful 20 minute session where they're practicing um, staying lucid and paying attention to what they're experiencing. Um, but the way that we do it is we use um, sensory cues. So we use a red LED light that's above the bed and there's this beeping sound that we have that we play in the bedroom. And we present these cues, this flashing light or this beeping sound about every minute. And we say, every time you notice this cue, remember to become lucid, remember to pay attention to what you're experiencing. Hmm. Uh, so we kind of train them to do this for 20 minutes before they go to sleep. And then once they're in sleep, um, when they're in REM sleep, we present these cues again, the flashing light and the beeping sound. And a lot of times people will notice the cue. It comes into their dream and it kind of triggers that memory. It triggers that, hmm. oh, I'm supposed to pay attention because this might be a dream. And so oh, maybe wow. the somebody's dreaming about being in a supermarket and all of a sudden the, the, the lights in the supermarket flash red, this red LED light gets incorporated <laughs> and they're like, Oh, this is a dream. Wow. <laughs> so, so that's kind of one of the techniques we're trying to use to get people to become lucid on command Oh wow! when they're in the lab. Yeah. So do you know, and have you, I guess, experienced much of the Hawthorne effect whenever you're actually studying these participants? Like what effect? the Hawthorne effect. That's like, I think it's the, called the Hawthorne effect. Whenever they know that they're being studied, they actually change some of what they're able to um, dream or whether it be induced stress or anxiety because of them knowing being studying, which actually affects and skews your results afterwards. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. So one thing that people dream about all the time when they're in the sleep lab is being in the sleep lab. They dream about this. They dream about being woken up and being asked about their dreams. They dream about trying to fall asleep. They dream about <laughs> like waking up and trying to like, they're hungry. I don't know. Yeah. They dream about being in the lab. So for sure we're it's, yeah, it's, it's impossible not to influence their dreams when they're there. I think yeah. <laughs> and that's a big problem there. actually, like going back to some of the early studies I was talking about, where we're trying to get people to dream about a task, mm -hmm. but instead they're, I mean, coming to the lab is much more of an interesting experience than whatever like video game task we yeah. give them, right? So they don't dream about the task. <laughs> they <laughs> dream about us and they dream about being in the lab, so. So what's what's pushing past that? Is there anything that, like any type of devices that they could wear home that helps them, uh, that helps keep track of all things you're trying to keep track of while also being in their home environment? Yeah, there is, you know, there's some new um, kind of portable wearable technologies that we can use to study sleep at home. Um, like the, there's something called the dream headband 
D-R-E-E-M, oh, wow. which is uh, measures EEG and measures sleep stages at home. Um, the Muse company, they have a sleep headband that's supposed to measure sleep at home. Um, so we're trying to kind of complement in laboratory research with these home devices and home dream diaries. Um, but it's still, it's, you know, I love, I love having people come into the lab. It's, it's nice to get the full setup and, and to be able to wake people up multiple times during the night and to, to make sure they are, they're reporting their dreams and to ask more questions if um, we need more information. So it's, it's still, I think in lab is still the best, but it's nice to complement with new technologies. Interesting. Man, I would love, maybe if I'm ever up there, you can give me a tour because that's, man, that'd be so much fun to watch. Or you just be a part of, shoot, I want to know about my dreams. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, we all as dream researchers love sleeping in the lab (laughs) as well ourselves. It's fun. Okay. So um, as we wrap up, uh, what is kind of the biggest thing that you want to see happen in your field? What's like, like, what's your biggest dream? This is also your passion, dream research, which is it's kind of cool. What's your biggest dream in dream research and, <laughs> and all that, that, that whole thing? Um, it's definitely like using dreams in therapy. Uh, I think there's been, you know, I mean, dreaming was originally kind of a part of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, but I think after Freud and it kind of lost, lost favor mm-hmm. um, and people kind of just started dismissing it uh, as either too complicated or too meaningless. Um, so I think just, just having dreams become a part of, of therapy again, um, either lucid dreaming for nightmares or just, just using dreams um, within other types of therapy as well, I think could be really useful. I mean, I think there's so much that we can learn. I mean, even you with your big dreams, your symbolic precognitive <laughs> dreams, I mean, I don't know, I think it can add, it can add another dimension to people's lives. I mean, rather than just dismissing these eight hours a day. Um, yeah using that in any way. Yeah. There's so much there that I want to learn more about everything from the dreams, the consciousness, um, even different dimensions. There's a lot of, there's actually a lot of research backing the dimension theories. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, all that, the unknown is what I love learning yeah. about and yeah. the unknown within dream research is super fascinating. We don't know Jack squat about it. Bottom line. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Any last words, anything you want to kind of tell um, as, as we wrap up? I don't know. Thank you for having me. No, thank you so much. Well, Dr. Carl, I'll let you get back to you and your cat and whatever you got to do today. So (laughs) (laughs) you have a good day. Okay. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye.